Good morning, church family. And if you are here for the first time at West Cabarrus Church or tuning in online for the first time, we're glad that you're here. Or maybe you're just new to church in general, um, you haven't been coming to church, we're just glad that you're here uh, with us this morning at West Cabarrus Church. We're grateful for that. We've been going through this series, you saw that video um, called Living Hope, where we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter. The last two weeks, we took a quick pause from that to focus in on the calling that God has placed on every believer's life to take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations. And so the last two weeks, we looked at that mission's focus. And then today, we're diving back in to 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2. So grab your Bibles, go ahead and make your way there. And as you make your way there, uh, I know we got to really kind of celebrate and appreciate our staff a little bit this morning, but I want to make it even a little bit broader to say how grateful I am that we have just a servant's heart uh, with our deacons and our administrative team here at the church. Across the board, they help to serve and lead our church in some incredible ways. And so uh, let me just say, if you are uh, serving as a deacon right now or an administrative team leader, if you would just stand for us, we'd just like to express our gratitude to you. There we go. Yeah. Thank you all so much for how you care and how you serve. Um, if you don't know what each one of those uh, leadership roles do within our church, our deacons are really just the, the arm of service. They, they uh, love and care so many different ways. Even the chairs you're sitting in right now, it's because our deacon team was here yesterday on their Saturday, spending part of their day setting up these chairs to be ready for Sunday morning. And they set up a Lord's Supper when we do that on those Sundays. Anytime you're walking in, you see the table and uh, that person standing behind it, that person serves uh, as one of our deacons here at the church. You can always express gratitude there. But they help set up the baptistry when we have baptisms that we do, as well as just kind of the day in and the day out uh, loving care and benevolence that we have as a church. And so they've done a lot to care for us, and especially their wives. Uh, our deacons' wives do a lot uh, as well as they serve alongside their husband. And so uh, if you've had a newborn over the last year or so, You've got a package from um, one of our deacon's wives and maybe even a visit and definitely some prayers. So our deacon's wives have sacrificed to serve alongside of them. So we're grateful for how our deacons serve our body here at West Coast Church. Our administrative team is kind of the arm of uh, stewardship and accountability on our finances. So we're grateful for them because we want to honor your generosity as you give generously to the ministry and mission of Christ here. We want to be above board in everything that we do. And so our administrative team meets regularly to look over um, how we're spending the money and where the money's going to, and even as kind of the, the last step before it makes it to our church family on the approval of our church budget and, and what that money is going to. So we're extremely grateful for how they help steward and care for our finances and our staff as a whole. And with this, we have a privilege as a church to nominate these people each year. And so you'll see out in the Welcome Center or in the back uh, seat pocket of the, the chair in front of you, one of these small forms right here. On one side, it's got deacon nominations. On the other side, it's got um, admin team nominations. If you are a partner at West Coast Church in ministry and mission, would highly encourage you to take um, advantage of this opportunity to prayerfully consider who you might nominate to be uh, serve as a deacon or an uh, admin team member. And so take this with you. You have until the end of the month to fill this out, or you see the QR code. You can scan that or hop on our website, and you can also fill out nomination form there. Now, in order to do this, this is a privilege that our church members have. So if you are a church member, you can do this, but it's also got to be for another church uh, member or partner to be uh, nominated. So make sure that you're a partner, and the person you're nominated is a partner for these different roles. So grateful for how y'all serve, grateful for y'all's intentionality as a church to prayerfully consider who will be serving in these roles in uh, the days ahead. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in 
to 1 Peter. Father in heaven, we pause to thank you just for the staff that you've provided for this church, the unity, uh, the love for one another, the heart of service. God, we don't want to take that for granted. We know it's a gift from you. And so thank you. And Father, we also want to confess that we thank you for the deacons, uh, their wives, and how they serve and love and care for this church, our admin team that cares for our staff and our finances. Lord, thank you for each one of them. And Lord, we love you for far, far more than just that. Lord, we love you for sending Christ Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. God, we thank you for your spirit, and we confess that we need your spirit this morning to help us to see your goodness and your grace to us in this passage. And I ask that you would open up our eyes to see and behold wondrous things from your word, and then that you would give us great wisdom to live out your amazing truth. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, I told you we had uh, two weeks break, so let me kind of give us a running start before we dive in in verse 11 of chapter 2. Peter, for the last chapter and a half, has been telling us what Christ has done for us as believers. What Christ has done is how he came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then took on our sin in our place on our cross. But it didn't just end with the cross. He rose from the grave, and now we have a living hope. That's what we entitled this series, Living Hope. Peter's talked about it in chapter 1, that in Christ, not even death itself could hold him down. There's a hope that goes even beyond the grave that is offered to us in Christ. So for those of us that have looked to him and confessed our sins and asked him to forgive us of those sins and have trusted in his death and his resurrection, we have this living hope given to us. It's a gift. And with this, our whole identity shifts and changes. The things that we used to live for, we don't live for anymore. The things that we used to, to prioritize, our priorities start to change because identity shapes activity. It just does. Identity shapes your activity. And we know this to be true. We've, we experience it not just in the church world and in Christian life. We experience it even outside of that. For years, I, was, I served as a singles pastor and a young adults pastor. So what that means is I got to be invited to a lot of weddings. And it was great. Many, many weddings. I got to go and enjoy seeing Christians not just commit their life to Christ, but commit their life to one another in covenant till death do us part, right? What was interesting is to know these people for years in their singleness and then married, seeing that identity change from single to marry, and now their whole life starts to shift and change. Why? Because your identity shapes your activity, okay? For example, before you were married and somebody asked you out on a date, you could say yes, and there was no issue with that, right? You could say yes to that. But once you're married and your identity's changed, you can't say yes to that anymore. If you say yes to that, then there's a major problem, okay? When you were single and your identity was in singleness, what you find is that if somebody came to you and they had this financial uh, adventure for you to take, right? Come in, it's going to make money, climb the pyramid scheme, you're going to do great, and you're like, I'm all in, and you put all that money in, you can do that, Right? When you're married, you take risky ventures with your finances, there's a talk coming. <laughs> there's a talk coming on how you're spending your money, right? Your identity shapes 
every aspect of your life, from how you have relationships with other people, what your friendships look like, how you deal with your finances, even how you think about your job is different because your identities shift. Now, you can apply that in many other places, but what Peter, that truth you can apply in many places, but what Peter's trying to do in this passage we're about to read is he's trying to get us to understand now that your identity has been changed by Christ, your activity looks different. And he's been telling us who we are in Christ. A couple weeks ago, we saw verse 9 of chapter 2. He says, you are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that we would proclaim his excellencies. And then today in verse 11, we'll read it in just a second, he's going to remind us again of our identity. We are beloved. We are sojourners. We are exiles. This world is not our home as Christians. We are citizens of heaven. And because of that identity, that shift that God has given us in Christ, our activities look different. And Peter wants us to see that, grasp that, and understand that. So let's pick up in verse 11. This is what Peter writes. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works or good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God. Peter's going to give us four different ways that our activity changes because of our identity. And I believe this is extremely beneficial for us today. It has many implications for us as Christians living in this modern time. And so let's listen to what God would call us as Christians to live and to do. First is this. Let us abstain from passions of the flesh. Let us abstain from passions of the flesh. Abstain means that you withhold yourself or hold yourself back from things that you used to give into. In other words, before Christ, we used to follow whatever our flesh wanted, whatever our hearts desired, but now in Christ, we have a choice. We have a choice to refrain from these things, from the passions of the flesh. Now, what does that mean, passions of the flesh? Well, if you have time, I encourage you, even this for, for extra credit this week, you can go and read Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, we find a list of what these things are. And it's probably much more than this, but it's certainly not less than this. And this is what it says in Galatians chapter 5. It says, the works of the flesh are evident. We should see it. We should know these things. He says it's sexual immorality. It's impurity. It's sensuality. It's idolatry. It's sorcery. It's enmity. It's strife. It's jealousy. Fits of anger rivalries, 
dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's a long list. It's a long list. But what he's trying to get us to understand is that these are the things that used to describe our identity. But now we don't live in these things. We abstain, we resist, we refrain from these things. Now some of us look through this list and we think, huh, some of this stuff sounds fun. Some of this stuff is very tempting for us. So why is it that we as believers should resist these things? Peter tells us in verse 11, these things wage war against your souls. Do you realize these things that we just see as light and fleeting are actually in a battle, in a war against our soul? They're killing our faith. They're robbing us of hope. They're harming us. They're harming us. And if we would slow down to to really consider this, we would see this to be true. That list in Galatians chapter 5 Many of those revolve around being sexually pure. And he hits every angle possible. He takes a broad, uh, overarching sexual immorality, and then he starts to hit certain categories, impurities, things of our thoughts and our minds, how we interact with, with one another, the things that we give our hearts and our life to. And he hits thing after thing after thing, really framing around sexual immorality. Now, we live in a time where we've had seemingly more sexual freedom and expression than we've ever done culturally in a world, right? And yet, if you go and you look at studies, we are less intimate with one another than we've ever been. And we have more, more isolated from one another than we have ever been. And it's because these things, these passions of flesh, are waging war against our soul, and it's robbing us. It's shrinking and shriveling up our soul. And so we we resist these things that wage war against us. We recognize that they're battling, that they do not want our best. These things that, that seemingly promise everything often rob us of everything. Now, Peter's not opposed to the, the gifts that God has given us. I mean, God is the one that created even sex itself but has put it within the frame of marriage. God tells us throughout the pages of Scripture to enjoy His creation that He has made, but to never to elevate those things above God, because those things will always be warring for first place in our heart and our soul. But Christ and Christ alone is worthy of of that spot. It's so interesting right now. We need to we need to ask ourselves the question as we consider this truth. Can you, can I, can we have desires in our heart that if we indulge, do damage to us? Really think about it. Can we have desires within our heart that if we really indulge, they do damage to us? And the answer is yes. That's what God's Word is trying to allow us to see this morning. We don't just give in to every passion that we have. There's a philosophy right now that's really prevalent in our world and in our culture that tells us whatever your heart feels, just do. 
Whatever your heart desires, just give into it. And I have to respond to that and say, well, which part? Which part? Because I find within my heart, in a, in, a, in a humorous sense, that my heart is oftentimes divided. Like, I really want to be physically fit. I want to exercise well and take care of my body. I have that desire in my heart. But I also desire to eat a lot of desserts. And like sit and watch college football all day, right? Like I desire that. So they're both in my heart. So like which part am I listening to, right? So this simple statement, which sounds great on the surface, if we start to analyze and realize, no, this is just covering the lie of what the world is preaching to us. Just give into your heart. Just do. No, your, your heart alone is divided. And it's because there's a war that is waging within your heart and much, much deeper in a spiritual level. Oh, that we would recognize this and respond to this rightly and resist these temptations. This is what Christ did. Do you realize this? Christ abstained from the, the passions of the flesh so that he could live a holy and perfect life and then die for us on, our, on the cross. And he did all of this so that we could enjoy him and ultimate pleasure for all of eternity. And for some of us, we've tried for years to break these addictions of our lives, these, these fleshly desires that are worn within us. We've tried to break it, and we just can't. We come back, and we can't. We fail, and we mess up. When we fail and we mess up, we have to come back to Jesus, the one who never failed and the one who never messed up. Where we faltered, he fulfilled. And so we come to him, and we ask forgiveness of these things. But at the same time, we come to him and say, God, we know that there's a war that's going on. And we need your strength and your power and your spirit to allow us to resist these temptations for the glory of your name and ultimately for our good. And we would do that. Look to Christ for forgiveness. Look to Christ for strength for the fight. Our identity in Christ will lead us to abstain from this list in Galatians 5. But all the commands that we find in this section that I just read aren't all don't. Don't do these things. Actually, you find more do's. The last three that we're going to look at are do. Do these things. And in verse 12, he tells us that when we, are, we have trusted in Christ, this is the second way our activity is going to change because of that identity. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may... See your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Oh, believer, would we keep our conduct as honorable? Keep our conduct as honorable. Christ desires that we would control our bodies to be holy as he is holy. So that those who slander us may one day join us. Did you see that? That's what he's saying in verse 12. And in case we missed it, he highlights it again in verse 15. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence ignorance of foolish people. In other words, he's saying, live in such a way that when people look at your life as a Christian, they see a difference. They say, you know what? I don't understand them. There's a little bit of oddness there about their life. But I hear what they're saying they believe, and I see it change and shape their life. They are full of, of love for other people, even those people that, that insult them or hurt them. They would look at the relationships in our life and say, and our relationships have health. 
whether it's a marriage relationship or a family relationship or even co-workers relationship, that there's health there, that a lost world would look and say, man, there's a sense of truth and grace in this person's life. I don't understand it all, but there's something different that's there. And even as they watch us walk through suffering and trials and difficulty, they see a hope that leads them to ask us the question, how? How do you have hope like that? This is a totally different lifestyle that Peter's calling us to live. Jesus Christ called us to do the same thing. In John chapter 17, it's called the high priestly prayer where Christ is praying for his disciples, praying for those who would one day believe in him. And it's interesting, in verse 17 of John 17, Jesus prays and says, Father, would you sanctify them by truth? Your word is truth. He's saying, God, would you make them holy? Would you change their conduct by the truth of your word, that they would read it and that it would shape them, that it would change their activity? That's what Jesus prays. And then the very next verse, he said, And Father, as you have sent me into the world, now am I sending them into the world. Do you recognize what's happening here? Jesus could have prayed for anything. And he pauses right here and he says, As I'm sending them into the world... I'm not praying, Father, would you make them articulate? That everything they say is perfect and right on time. He doesn't say, God, would you make them extremely eloquent? They they would have this speech of great wisdom as they go into a lost and hurting world. They would know exactly how to say everything. No, Jesus says, would you change their conduct? Would you make them holy as I am holy? This is what Jesus is praying for you and I. And we should be living out the answer to that prayer. That people would look at us when we claim to be Christian and say, yes, that person is kinder. That person is more generous. They have helped me even in the trouble in my own life. They even know how to face death when I don't know how to. And this is what God is calling us to do. And, And did you notice in verse 12 that our conduct... Our holiness, how we live, is not ultimately about you. And it's not ultimately about me. Did you catch that? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. These are people that were not believers. Why? The end of verse 12. They may see your good deeds. Why? And glorify God on the day of visitation. Did you notice it doesn't say that, that people would see your good deeds as you follow Christ and say, man, you're awesome. And we're like, I know, I am pretty amazing. Thank you for noticing. Please make sure everybody else notices. That's not what it says. No, it is for them to look at the compassion we have, the conviction that we have, and believe. Not glorify us, but they would glorify God who is in heaven And it's telling us right here that this is going to happen. Some people are going to look at the way that you live, and they're going to trust in Jesus Christ as you share the gospel with your life and with your words. They're going to see and believe. That's what's going to happen. But as we live this lifestyle, though some will be attracted to it, others are going to be repulsed by it. We also see that truth in chapter or verse 12. Did you see that? Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you. It does not say if, 
they speak against you? No, when they speak against you. And that happened at this time, in this culture. Many people spoke against believers at this time. They, they mocked them and made fun of them for a number of reasons. They said, y'all are so superstitious. You believe in miracles? Psh, miracles aren't real. People at this time in, in, in Rome were, were mocking them and making fun of them. They, they didn't understand everything about Christians. And so they made fun of them. They said, you know what? You have a lot of incest that is going on because you're marrying who you say are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, what is that? Right? And they mocked and made fun of them for it. They even called them cannibals because the Christians would say, well, we take something called the Lord's Supper, which is a picture of the, the body and the blood of Christ. And people are like, ooh, dude, like you eat somebody's body and blood? Like, that's gross. And, and that is gross, right? And they would make fun of them for that. And so what happened at this time, we should expect no less for us. We were following the footsteps of Christ, and they mocked and made fun of him. Although some were attracted to that. Some were repulsed, yes, but some were attracted and followed Christ. That's true of us. Now, I know some of us probably hear these simple commands, abstain from these things, keep your conduct holy, and you hear me saying, this changes a nation. This will change a world. And you're like, Ryan, you're so naive. Like, you have no idea. Like, you don't know the, the real world that's out there. You're saying that if I live different and I live out God's word, that this is really going to change things? Well, if that's where you are and that's what you're struggling with, let me just invite you to consider what happened to the people at this time as they did this. Did it work for them? I mean, this is their playbook. This is how they're living out the Christian life. Did it work? You see, it's interesting as you think about the life of Christ. On this map, you'll see that Jesus never left this really small circle region. He never journeyed outside of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. He didn't. A small little area. And yet, after the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, between AD 30 and AD 60, the gospel spread from this small circle to what you see on the map right there. It went as far west as Rome and as far east as India in 30 years. It spread all the way to North Africa, modern-day Turkey. The people that Peter's writing this letter to is because the gospel has spread to this area. The gospel spread so rapidly by people living out these truths that by AD 110, just 40 years after this letter was written, there was a new governor who took over Asia, Asia Minor. And he wrote this letter to the king. You can read it online. You can Google it. Look it up. It's a letter of Pliny to Trajan. And he said, I need advice. These are my words, but you can go read it online. He said, I need advice. All these Christians are coming into court. And I don't know if they're guilty because they're Christian or if they're guilty because they've broken crimes. But I just continue to deal out guilty to them. What am I, what am I supposed to do? Because there's so many Christians that are being brought to court now. And he writes in there, some are young and some are old. Some are rich and some are poor. Some are slaves and some are free. But across the board, all these people are coming to Christ and they're trusting in him. And he writes in this letter, our, our temples for all our Roman gods, they're empty. Like there's nobody there anymore. And so if I keep killing Christians like I'm killing Christians, there's not going to be any people left in my region. That's what 
a lost guy is writing to another lost guy. This is shortly after this letter is written. So does it work? Yes. Is it tough? Absolutely. It is. But it works. It has worked. And it's the same thing that God is calling us to do today. Jesus described his kingdom like a mustard seed. It starts out extremely small, and we would look and say, there's nothing that's going to come of that. And then it grows, and it grows, and it grows. To the point of, at 300 AD, allegedly the emperor of Rome professes Christ as Lord. These few guys trust in Jesus Christ to be forgiven. And Jesus changes their identity, and their activity starts to change the point where they impact the entire world. So yeah, it works. Yes, it works. We should live out these truths. But not just live out that we should abstain from pastures of the flesh, and not that we should just guard and keep our conduct, but you see in verse 13, there's another command that's given us. And this one might be the hardest of today, to be honest. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. This is a hard command, to be subject for the Lord. Let me just be honest. I mean, the word subject, some Bible translations have it as submit. He is telling us as Christians, we submit to every human institution. That's a hard word. I highly doubt. Somebody please come and tell me afterwards if, if I'm wrong. But I highly doubt anybody got up this morning, was getting ready for church, and was like, you know what? I want to break out my submit mug this morning. It's got submit written on it. I'm having my coffee this morning. Get ready for church. Let's submit. I doubt any of us have ever purchased a throw pillow that has submit written on it. Oh, it looks nice. Nice little Bible verse. Submit. Yeah, let's go ahead and throw that down there. Like, no, it is rough. Like, it rubs against us. And you want to know why it rubs against us? Specifically for us, let me give you two reasons. One, it's because of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. We, we come from that line of Adam and Eve, and that's where it all started. God is there in this garden, and he says, hey, guys, go and enjoy all these pleasures of this garden. But hey, this one thing, don't do. And Adam and Eve are like, don't you tell me. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Because I, I am God, not you, me. And so instead of bowing the knee and submitting, we're like, no, I want to put myself in that place. And I want to be like God, right? That DNA that runs through them is the same DNA that runs through us. And so we, we struggle to, 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 to read this and, and live out this submission portion of it because we got this DNA that we got as children of Adam and Eve. But second reason is because we're the children of the American Revolution, Right? We got this rebellion in our heart. It is the air that we breathe of, don't you tell us what to do. We're going to do things our way. And though we started years ago like that as a nation, that heartbeat is still found within us today in America. We just do, right? We want to push back on any kind of leadership. We're the children of Adam and Eve. We're the children of the revolution. So hear me clearly. Rebellion against leadership is a human thing. Absolutely. Rebellion is an American thing, sure, but it's not a Christian thing. It's just not. That is not how God's word calls us as believers to live this identity that we have in Christ. 
No. No, it's a hard statement, though it's one we might want to skip over. Don't miss the beauty of verse 15. For this is the will of God. Some of you have desperately been praying for the will of God in your life. And here it is. To submit to the leaders that are above you. And we're like, nope, that's not the will I wanted to know, God. I only want to know this will on this side, right? So don't, let's, let's put this down and give me what I want to know. And God's like, I'm telling you, this is a part of what it means to follow Christ. Now, some of you might say, well, I submit all the time. Let me just give a little flavor to submission, right? If we're going to take this hard issue on our heart, let's just be real with it for a little bit. Some of us think we submit all the time, but we, we look at the things around us and we're like, you know, somebody has authority, and I agree with them. So I agree with the speed limit. I agree with what they're telling me to do, so I submit to them. Submitting to somebody is when you honestly don't agree with them, and you still choose to submit. And make no mistake, Peter is writing this with a Roman government that is filled with corrupt and evil people. I wrote all this out and I studied the, the emperors that ruled during the, the time that Peter would have been alive, that Peter would have been writing this, and it was atrocious. I don't have time to unpack it. Some of it was humorous, but like not people that we would look up and be like, man, that's an amazing leader. I want to follow him. No, like, like Nero is, is a man whose wife was pregnant and he kicked her to death and killed her, felt bad about it, so he goes and he kidnaps a 13-year-old boy makes this 13-year-old boy dress in his dead wife's clothes and wear a wig and walk around and pretend to be his wife. And Peter's saying, this is the guy that I want you to honor. What? This is crazy. So why would we ever do this? Why would we ever be subject to every human institution? Is it because we're just a compliant bunch? That we as Christians just kind of like fold like a cheap lawn chair? Like, that's, that's what we are, so let's just fold all in and, and, and submit. Is it because the government can oppress us so much and they have so much more power than us, that's why we submit? No. Peter tells us in verse 13, why do we submit? Why are we subject? For the Lord's sake. We submit not for our sake. Not because the, our boss or our parents or the leadership of our nation are pure and faultless, holy people. No, we do it for the Lord's sake. That is what fuels our submission. The Lord. We don't have time to unpack it this morning, but once again, for extra credit, if you want to go read Romans 13, God's word talks about this. That God has ordained government. That he has put the leaders in place. He's ordained structures to bring order so that a society can flourish. He tells us the, the, even the role of the government in this passage. So the government is not evil in itself. Though the people who lead it are sinners just like every one of us. There's only one perfect leader and it is Jesus. Everyone else will fall and falter. Every one of us. And so we look at our government, we need to realize the truth of God's word, that God has ordained this. And he's put these leaders in place. And we should honor the ability that we have as a nation to vote. To vote for what we believe that the person that God would want to be in that position. 
And so I know that with this, even biblically, that there comes a time where, where the government might, might ask you to do something that's the opposite of God's word. And there's a line you draw in the sand there. Peter, who wrote this, drew the line in the sand there. Where the government came to him and said, Peter, all right, we hear you like preaching and talking to all these different people about Jesus. That's got to stop. You can like be kind and caring, but like don't talk to people about Jesus and we'll be good. And Peter responds and says, hey, I can't do that. God has told me to do this. And so I'm going to be faithful to follow what God has called me to do. And so I'm going to disagree with you. But Peter did not despise those he disagreed with. No, he honored them. Peter would bear the consequence of what the government said for him as he disobeyed him. Peter kept preaching Christ, and ultimately it led to the point where like, we're going to have to take your life, Peter. And he says, okay, I'm not going to despise you. I'm going to continue to honor you. And one of the consequences is that my life will be taken in order to proclaim and be obedient to Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. He was crucified for preaching the good news of Jesus. And so we, too, can still disagree with people and not despise them. We can disagree with people and still honor them. That's what Peter's calling us to do. That's what Peter did in his life. So to to get to the root of this, even our own heart, two questions. First, I would encourage you to check your heart to see, are you being submissive to Christ? This whole command to be subject for the Lord's sake, if you're not submitting to Christ, then you're never going to submit to others. You just won't. So I challenge you to think, even in your heart, when's the last time you've read God's word or God's stirred in your heart and you're like, ooh, don't want to do that. And you respond and say, nope, even though I don't, I'm going to bow the knee to you, Lord, as the good and perfect king. Have you done that? Maybe God has been calling some of you here to trust in him, to ask him to forgiveness of, for forgiveness of your sins. You're like, no, I'm going to work hard enough. I'm going to be a moral enough person, and I'll be good. Like, I will make myself feel better, and you can't do it. Christ is saying, no, there's no other way you can be saved except through me. Are we submitting to Christ? And the second is, are we submitting to authority? Kids, are you submitting in obedience to your parents? Are we submitting to the things that we don't agree with when instructions are given to us from a, a boss? Are we submitting? See, our new identity as having Christ as our king will change our activity. It will change how we interact with the authority around us. Do we submit well? Do we submit well? Lastly and quickly today, the fourth thing that will change based on our identity in Christ is that we will live as free people serving the Lord. Look in verse 16. He says, live as people who are free. Now we read that, and in our American mind, freedom to us means I get to do whatever I want. I get to do whatever I want so I, I can, can live and do this way or that way, or I don't have to listen to anybody's rules, or I don't have to submit to any authority. But then you see later on in verse 16, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This freedom that we live is used to serve the Lord. Some of us are free socially, and we're free politically, but we are in bondage spiritually. 
our heart sits in shackles. And if you want true freedom, the the identity that Christ gives to us through his life, you have to look to him. John chapter 8, verses 34 and 36 says this, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If you don't want to be a slave, then, then you need to change your ways, right? And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You'll be free indeed. And Jesus offers us true freedom. And in return with this freedom, as we live it out, as we're freed from these shackles that drag us down, now we respond like verse 17 says. As servants of the Lord, we honor everyone. We love the brotherhood, which is the the body of believers, the church. We fear God and we even honor the emperor. This is what God has called us to do as we lovingly respond to the way that he has first loved us. Let's go to that good God in prayer now. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for showing us the things that would wage war against our souls. God, thank you for showing us through your word the shackles that are on us because of the sin in our life. And Father, I pray that you would free us from those things this morning. That you would give us this living hope. Father, for the one who has never taken the step of faith to trust in you, I pray that today as you tug on their heart, that they would respond in submission to your will, your way. That they would ask forgiveness and trust in you and find that freedom and live in that freedom. And for those of us that have trusted you and are walking with you, God, I pray that you would help us to abstain from certain things. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ when we fail, but may we never use that freedom to cover up our sin. May we repent and confess and live in a way that our conduct is honorable to you and that the world would look and see and some on the day when you come again would praise you because of the way that you have kept us holy. Father, we need you to do that. For apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, give us strength as we respond to your word today. It's in your name we pray. Church, let's stand now and let's sing to the one who is worthy of all glory and praise.